0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Lutie is entitled, The Full Tenth. Oftentimes when we as Christians get close to the topic of money, we get a little overprotective. We like our money, thank you very much, and don't take very kindly to the preacher telling us what to do with it. However, the tithe is not just a part of some Old Testament law that we are now excused from. The tithe came before the law, and it is a small token of expressing to God our full and entire consecration unto Him. It isn't just 10% that He asks for, but everything. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: Not that much in the Bible that I hesitate to to speak on, and this is not—I don't hesitate to speak on it, do I? Well, sort of. You see, there's there's been a tremendous amount of abuse in the arena I'm about to talk about, and so as a result, there's this natural hesitancy for me ever to even get close to the topic. And at Ellerslie for nearly five years, I gave one message actually that hinted at the concept of it, but I never directly hit it. And uh, I'm going to just go straight in today. Uh, And for whatever reason, I actually am very excited about this. I know it sounds very strange. You don't know what the message is yet. Uh, But I'm actually very excited. This message has changed me. I have a lot to apologize to you about as we begin this message. Because as a minister of the gospel, as one entrusted with the word of God to give it and to shepherd in such a way where the full counsel of God is is made manifest and taught in our midst, I would say that I have hindered, not intentionally, it wasn't some purposeful thing, but a lot of times when we have problems in our past, like different things that we've seen strangled, we have a tendency to, what A.W. Tozier calls, back into our belief system, where the opposite must be true. If, if this is wrong, which it obviously is, the way that this has been handled, then the opposite must be true, which is to avoid that idea at all costs. And so at Ellerslie, I literally labor to walk people through all the things that they've backed away from to say the word of God is safe. And so I'm going to start with that as a premise that the word of God is safe. Aren't you guys wondering? Some of you are concerned that this is, you know, you have all sorts of ideas dancing in your head. Uh, But uh, it's probably worse than you think. Uh, The full 10th. I could have called it the full tithe, but that would have given it away too quickly. Can you believe Eric's about to talk about this? (laughs) So uh, anyone who's been here for five years knows that I've never passed an offering basket except for to support other ministries, support missionaries, support adoptions. I've never asked for money here. This is what we could call a tent-making ministry. This entire college is supernatural. There's no other way of explaining it because we didn't have a denominational support. And technically, we haven't even had finances from a church to support it. We have built a business model that actually makes it work, and it undergirded, in a sense, with a business model, and we are able to disciple the nations that way. Well, in, a, in theory, it's a great concept. However, practically, in the body of Christ, it doesn't weave us together. It doesn't bring ownership to ministry it actually can isolate. And so some of the things that I've noticed, even in our model, that are beautiful, I could talk about the beautiful things, but I could also talk about some of the issues that need to be addressed, this is one of them. And ironically, this is what unifies. It's not what tears apart, it's what unifies. And so as I go through this, I think you're going to be extremely blessed. I know this doesn't sound like a message that could all be fun to go through. Doesn't it just sound convicting, miserable, arm-twisting? Well, it's, I haven't even asked for anything like this for five years. I think if anyone's earned the right to speak on this topic, it should be me. I mean, come on. The full 10th. A money-driven church. Eric Lutie's great phobia. Eric Lutie's great paranoia. I do not want to have a church that is built around the dollar bill. I want a church built around Jesus Christ. And so as a result, there's a propensity in me to never talk about the dollar bill and as a result hopefully we'll never have a money-driven church so just so you know the guy talking to you is just as sensitive on these issues as you may be i don't know what your background is but i've been in many churches which have the high pressure sales thing going and uh, i've been in churches where it does stop in front of you and just sort of waits Uh, i've had church situations where i'm the speaker I'm coming in from out of state, I have nothing in my pockets, and I have something in front of me, and I don't even know what to do, everyone's sort of looking, Oh yeah, and I've, I don't know if you remember this story, I shared this once, where I actually faked giving money once, because it's like the, everyone's watching me, I stuck my hand in and sort of acted like I put something in. I have since confessed that and made that right, but the point is, I'm sensitized to these things, and it's very likely that some of you are as well. The father of the tithe. You know, the tithe is not, its origin is not in the Levitical law. It's not a legal thing. And that's what's sort of surprising, because one of the key things when you start talking about a tithe, by the way, a tithe simply means a tenth. That's what it means. It means a tenth, and a tenth was, didn't originate in the law. Any more than salvation originated in the law, salvation is before the law. The law revealed our need for salvation. But salvation has always been gained by faith, and that's Paul's argument in Romans 4. He's saying, look, the same means of salvation has always been there. Abraham, it was counted to him as righteousness when he believed. When he turned to God and had faith, it was credited to him as righteousness, and he is the father of all those that would believe. Well, strangely, he's also sort of the father of the tithe. Isn't that a strange thought? The very one who started this whole thing out as far as faith is the very father of the tithe. So here we are in Genesis 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's the equivalent of saying the king of righteousness from Jerusalem. Who does that sound like? Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. This is the higher priestly order. And it comes to earth and it stands before Abraham. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was the priest of God most high. It's like a, a shortened version of the gospel right there. He brought out bread and wine. What was the bread and wine? It was his body and his blood. He set it before us. And those that believed are going to receive something. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, I had to put it in there just so you know who the he is. And he, Abram, who we know as Abraham, gave him a tithe of all. Abraham is a fairly wealthy guy. He gave him a tenth of all he had to this guy that we never see again in Scripture. Who in the world is that? Well, I'm not going to teach you on Melchizedek today. That's not what this is about. The fathers of the faith. So we talk about Abraham, but then Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, two sons, Esau and Jacob, but Jacob is the one that truly is going to carry on the lineage of the seed. And so we see this lineage beginning, and this is before the law, and I'm just mentioning that to make it very clear that many of us, when we see the tithe, they're saying, well, look, we're not under law anymore. And so as a result, in the New Testament, we say, well, there's actually no prescription for us to need to do this. I'm actually going to make a case today for something known as the 10th, and that it's not an arm twist, it's what is reasonable. It's that which is just, that which is appropriate, and that which all throughout history has been deemed as such. So the fathers of the faith, here we are, Jacob, remember this is before the law, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that thou shalt give me, this is Jacob speaking, I will surely give the the tenth unto thee. And so the fathers of the faith, the lineage from which the seed springs forth, they understood something, and that is when they run into the one that is higher than them, The reasonable portion, in other words, instead of having to wait on God and say, God, what am I supposed to give, the reasonable portion is just obvious. It's always been a tenth. So this is the word in the Hebrew, the maaser, the tenth part. It actually is 10%. That's what we would refer to it as, but it's the tenth part. And so you break up all that you have, all your property into parts, and a tenth of that goes straight to God. It's just the understood tenth. You know that this is not a new thing and it wasn't a legal thing. This is the reasonable thing. If I came up to you and stuck out my hand and said, hi, what is the reasonable thing? Are you obligated? I mean, is there some law in the land that will punish you if you don't do the right thing? No, but there's a right thing to do and there's a wrong thing to do. And for whatever reason, we all know it. You stick out your hand and you shake it. And there's a better way to shake than others, by the way. The old dead fish is not the way we shake. You shake the hand, and you greet, and you say, hi. It's reasonable. It's the reasonable response to that which has been expressed to you. The bare minimum. So I'm going to call the tithe the bare minimum. We're going to just call it the basic, okay? God's just, equitable, and fully reasonable minimum percentage. By the way, this is his idea, not mine. In fact, it's so not my idea that it takes me a lot To actually get up here and even talk about this idea, which is not mine. It's God's. There is no need to reinvent the way to financially undergird the kingdom of heaven on earth. The tenth is the secret. I'm about to unveil to you a secret, and it's in Scripture, and it's so absolutely brilliant and profound, and yet most of us completely miss it. And there's reason, it's because we almost want to miss it. But the tenth is the secret, and it is found, and in it is found the brilliance of heaven. So as you navigate your financial life, most of us have never been trained financially. Okay, and so as a result, I mean, leave it up to us as Americans to really bungle things up financially, but most of us are upside down in almost every capacity financially. We have not been groomed according to a biblical framework, and this is the most basic. This is the bare minimum. This is the no-brainer. So, to speak. And that is, God has already created a system by which a community supports itself. And in this case, it's a kingdom. It's known as the nation of Israel. God says this is how it works. And when there is any kind of coming together, you could call it a confederacy, you could call it a covenant of a people then there is a way in which that can work which supports even the people itself. It's really strange because when the people do this, it actually causes everything to thrive. You can look at it the same with the individual life, though, too, an individual family. There's no need to reinvent and come up with a new novel way to handle resource. You just come to God and say, God, how am I supposed to handle my resource? You don't need to reinvent so, God, I'm going to introduce him to you as the ultimate king, counselor, strategist, and businessman. Most of us don't think of him as a businessman, but when it comes to like the Council of Israel and all the counselors would get, get, get together and they're like, how should we handle our resource? Should we call forth a tax? Should, uh, should we invest in wheat and build big barns? What should we do? How should we do it? God has a system. This is truly remarkable. There's a system. There's a system for how national Israel worked. And it's pretty brilliant. So let's face it, he knows what he's doing. Oh, even the word is sort of awkward, isn't it? There's a lot of baggage with that word. Now, I'm not going to take a poll in here to see how many of you like the word. You know, it's funny, even in church, we oftentimes call it an offering basket. We dare not call it a tithe basket. Offering is just a more pleasant word. The tithe, the secret to the supernatural nation. The infrastructure of temple, feasts, worship, and holy government. This is the secret to a supernatural nation, for it to work. You know that God's nation is a supernatural nation? There are people in that nation, an entire twelfth of that nation, almost functions supernaturally without typical wage. How in the world is that supposed to work? How in the world can they build a government that functions the way that that government functioned, with so much to give? So much to serve, God says, I will bless you so that you would be a blessing to the nations. When something is built right, it doesn't just care for its own basics. It actually turns outward to support the needs of nations around it. So the tithe, I'm gonna go through a quick list here. It's a secret to the supernatural career also, not just the infrastructure, the temple, the government, but it's also the secret to the supernatural career of the Levites. The Levitical order, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, was one-twelfth of the nation, and they lived, in a sense, supernaturally. Well, you could say it that way, but there was a very natural prescription for how it was supposed to work, and it was based on what we know as the tithe. The tithe is also the secret to addressing the needs of the poor within the land. So there were three tithes of Israel, or one of the ways that I would call it is the three-tiered tithe. A tithe in Israel was used for three key things. So some people would call it the three tithes, or you could say the the tithes that are used in three very specific ways. However, you would want to articulate that. The three tithes of Israel. Every Jew was required by the Levitical law to pay three tithes, or pay their tithe in three ways. One tithe was for the Levites, one one for the use of the temple and the great feasts. How in the world are they going to throw this great feast in Jerusalem? Where's the money coming from? Well, it's coming from a very specific place, known as the treasury or the storehouse. Well, how'd the money get there? Well, it's the tithe. And one for the poor of the land. So if you don't tend to these things, you're gonna notice that Israel doesn't work. When the tithe is not brought in, Israel falls apart. The supernatural nation is no longer supernatural. It is no longer bearing the glory of God. It is falling into disrepair. The full tenth. So the, the name of this message is The Full Tenth, and so uh, hopefully you're going to begin to put the, together what I mean by that, but it's the reasonable share. A lot of us think that when we, when we think about giving a tenth of what we earn, by the way, that is a, that just feels like a lot, and even as I'm beginning to talk about it, you know, some of you could be just like dying on the inside. I don't know what's going on inside of you. Some of you are very good with the face. You've been at Ellerslie for a long time. You know how to hear some serious truth and not wince, because you know I might pick up on the wince. (laughs) So I don't know what's going on inside of you. However, there's a difference between the 10th and the full 10th. And I think every single one of us knows what the difference is. How many of you have given the 10th, but you've come up with all sorts of creative gymnastic routines of getting to that 10th? And by the way, I've done this. I, I am always guilty you know, when I'm t- sharing sort of sticking my hand with, an, with nothing in it into the offering basket. Why do I tell you guys these things? <laughs> but I have done gymnastic routines to come up with my version of a 10th as well. It's like, well, yeah, based on this and this and this, and when you subtract out that, then you get to the 10th. And I'm, I'm just saying there's a reasonable portion. The last thing we want to do is skimp on this exact issue. It's sort of like the limp-wristed handshake. Don't skimp. The hand extends to you, you extend yours to them. Give the reasonable response. Firm, nice grip. Look in the eye and say, hi. (laughs) I'm teaching my kids at the same time. The full tenth, the reasonable share, that which is expected of the citizen. I'm going to introduce you to this concept of a citizen. There's a difference between a citizen and a foreigner. You know that a foreigner coming into the land of Israel, there was no request of them paying a tithe? None. It's for the citizen. But the foreigner has none of the benefits of citizenship. If you do not share in the benefits of citizenship, then there's no requirement for you to tithe. However, the city, the city does not work if there isn't a tithe from the citizens. So we'll call it the reasonable share, that which is expected of the citizen. The old covenant. Now I'm gonna emphasize a word in this, old. Because as we move forward, we're gonna see old and new. This is one of the themes of scripture. You have old and new constantly. Now, in past messages, you've heard me say first and second. That's equally just as powerful of a picture. The first is always a picture of the flesh. God rejects it. It cannot satisfy God. The second is a picture of the spirit. It's that which pleases God. So you have Cain, Abel. Cain's offering, rejected. Abel's offering, the offering of the second, is received. Ishmael, Isaac. Esau, Jacob. The first is rejected, the second is received. Well, we have an old covenant and new covenant. But let's imagine that there isn't a new covenant yet. Uh, I know that just that would be like sticking a, a knife in our balloon. You know, it just changes everything if there's not a new covenant. Because most of us in here, have, I know we have at least one man of Jewish descent in here, but the rest of us would be, just be Gentile dogs. We are on the outside of Israel. We do not share in the citizenship. We do not share in what's known as the commonwealth of Israel. There is a wealth and it is commonly shared amongst two, well, Israelites. Well, that wouldn't be us. So under the old covenant, there is a way of putting together a nation. And so let's look at that. So in Romans 9, it actually is reflecting back on this concept of the old covenant. It says, who are Israelites? to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom was concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever, amen. So I'm gonna break this down so you can see it a little more clearly. What do the Israelites have in their possession? We could call this the commonwealth of Israel. It's the wealth that is common to all the citizens of Israel, and it is not common to us. If you're a Gentile, you're cut off from this. The adoption, they actually have an adoption. They are grafted into the lineage of God. The glory, they get to bear in their very nation the glory of God. And through them, God's glory is meant to be made manifest. I mean, who else can boast that? Only the Israelites. The covenants, they actually share in the covenant promises of God. The giving of the law, they actually have the opportunity to witness the perfect righteousness of God. Now some of you could say, I don't know if that was much of a blessing. It was, because it revealed to them sin. And you can say, how is that a blessing? Because that revealed to them the need for Jesus. You see, they actually will know better than any nation on earth their need for a Messiah. The service of God, they actually get to serve Jehovah. What a privilege! When they come to serve, he doesn't turn them away. The promises, eh, there's some doozies in the old covenant. Wow, what promises? What's amazing is it says of the new covenant, better promises. But these were good, powerful promises. The fathers, they get to say, yeah, my father was Abraham. Well, we we don't get to say that as Gentiles. It doesn't come out the same way when we're grafted in via Jesus Christ. But right now I'm trying to live as if there isn't a new covenant. That's really hard for me right now. But they get to boast that they have the fathers. And how about this? We're the race of the incarnation. God, Emmanuel, will be born out of our lineage. Can anyone else say that? To all of us Gentiles, can you say that? No, we can't. See, this is what they possess. This is called the commonwealth of Israel. They had a share. They had a share in that. Those eight beautiful points of promise and covenant and law, they get to say it. They have it. They have a share. They have a share in a part. It's like being in a family and knowing that you are part of the inheritance, you have a share in that inheritance. Well, think about this. They had a share, they also had a responsibility. You see, many of us cut off the, the concept of responsibility. Oh, I have a share in Christ Jesus. Well, yeah, but you also have a responsibility. If you had a share in the commonwealth of Israel, you also have a responsibility. What's your responsibility? Well, here it is, very quickly, it's eight things. You must go to the temple, offer your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, The heave offerings of your hand, I could have made number four really big so you wouldn't miss it. But the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So you call yourself a citizen. Oh, yeah. So you want the benefit and the bounty of Israel. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is your responsibility as a citizen. God sticks out his hand and says, Hi. Your responsibility, your base responsibility, this is baseline. This is not like some extra measure. Most of us call this sacrifice. Most of us call this generosity. No, this is what is expected. This is the baseline of what is expected. Blessing and strength seem tied to the tithe. Now, I'm going to read some scriptures here. And if any of you grew up in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, you just sort of curdle within. It's just like, oh, no, not that scripture. Let's take back scripture. From anyone who has run roughshod over it and tried to use it for fleshly gain... Let's take it back and say it's still the word of God. Have you ever felt that at times? It's like you can't even read certain scriptures, you just have to skip over them because they've been abused. It's God's word, not man's. And so where it has been abused, guess what? It's still God's word. So it says in Malachi 3, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now I'm gonna, we've been talking about the full tithe, but I'm gonna start talking about the storehouse because that's gonna be important as well. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. But what I want you to see in this scripture is what happens as a result of doing the basic, the bare minimum. That there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. God says, look, just do the basics that I'm telling you. Watch what happens. If I will, oh, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now, we're in the New Testament. We're on the other side of the Jordan River here. You know, you have the wilderness, the old covenant, and now you have Joshua taking the territory. We're in the new covenant, and we're like, well, that's, well, that's old covenant stuff. We don't need to bring the tithe into the storehouse. And, you know, it's an actually interesting point. You know, if someone were to say, actually, we're not bound to give the tithe. There's no prescription in the New Testament that says we are to, to do this. You know, it's an interesting statement. So what I'm going to walk through is a, is a statement of what it says throughout the Bible, and I'm going to drive that home for us. Okay, And I'm going to create a link for us to understand our relationship to this mysterious thing known as the 10th. Introducing the storehouse. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. In the Old Testament, there's a very, very specific place you're supposed to bring the tithe. And this is what's extremely fascinating. As I was studying this week, first of all, I've been deeply convicted this week over this message. This is very personal for me. Because I feel like in many ways I've been hindering you guys as a body from functioning as you ought to function because of what we could call my paranoia. Now, to me, anyone who knows me knows that I am not purposely attempting to hinder something. I actually want to honor God. And I do not want to be a stumbling block to you. I do not want you to trip over this type of stuff and not come to Jesus. If you came straight from a high-pressure sales pitch church, to here, I do not want you to immediately turn away and say, I've had enough of this thing called Christianity. I want you to recognize that we are not some downline Amway sales club, which is trying to just get people into our downline to make, make money off of you. It isn't how it works here. And so I, I have hopefully proven that for five years. At the same time, I don't know that I'm helping you. Any more than if my son's bed needed to be made. And I kept going down and saying, look, I'll make it for you. I don't want you to trip over the fact that you need to make your bed in the morning. In other words, there's certain basic responsibilities of being a loody. And if I suddenly usurp that and say, you know, all the visitors that come in, I'm like, could you come down and make Hudson's bed for him? You know, because, you know, I don't want to put that burden on him. There's a lot of kids that have been really hurt by, you know, their parents making all these chore lists for them. They grow up and they just are a wreck. And so as a result, I actually harm my child by not giving a reasonable response to being a lootie. So I'll bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And so we're going to start building on this concept of the storehouse. There's a specific spot that Israel was supposed to bring their tithe. Now, this is an extremely interesting study. So you notice a word here. Most of you have never heard Jerusalem called Old Jerusalem. However... Since there is a new Jerusalem, that means, well, there's an old Jerusalem. And so I'm going to call it that, old Jerusalem. Uh, you know what it is? It's the place of the tithe. Now, we're going to go to Deuteronomy. And so this is Moses as he's giving his last gasp. This is one long gasp, by the way. Uh, I've, I don't know that I've ever heard someone talk as long as Moses talks in Deuteronomy. But he goes on and on, but what he's doing is he's laying out a framework for life on the other side of the Jordan. I want you to listen closely to that. Remember Jordan, or Yardain, means the one who comes down, the one who descends. And so you have the old covenant, and then you have a Yardain, and then you have Joshua, Yeshua, the same name as Jesus, and you have a promised land. How do you gain the promised land? Moses can't take you in, the law can't take you in, but there is one who will make a way through the Yardain, and he comes down from heaven. And so we have Moses in the wilderness saying that when you come into that other land, when you submit under Joshua, and you live on the other side of this Jordan, I will show you a place. He doesn't even give the, name, the, the place a name. He says, I will show you a place. And so here we have all these years later, and we could say, huh, what was his place? What, what did he show the Israelites? He showed them a place called Jerusalem. Actually, the king of Salem, remember Melchizedek? Yeah, that's, that's where he lived. Jerusalem. Salem. That, that's the place that he chose. But listen to this. This is Moses preparing them. He doesn't say there'll be a place called Jerusalem. He gives a very specific description of what this place will be like. He says, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. In other words, God is going to choose a place. It says, out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, I made it big just so you don't miss it, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses. He just says the same thing over again. To make his name abide. There is going to be a place on the other side of the Jordan where he will make his name abide. Okay, now every single one of you in here might be thinking Old Covenant because that's all I've talked about so far. But I want a little to seep out as I'm talking into the New Covenant understanding that there is going to be a place and it's the place that you're supposed to bring your sacrifice. You're supposed to bring your praise. You're supposed to bring your offerings. You're supposed to bring your tithe. And it's a place that he will choose is a place where his name will abide. So it says, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see. You see, on your way to Jerusalem, on your way, See, he doesn't say Jerusalem here, but there's a place, and it it was Jerusalem. That's the place that God said his name. On your way to Jerusalem, there's going to be a lot of other places. Now, these could be false idols. These could be like Molech or you know some other god here. And don't offer your burnt offerings along the way in these other places. Make sure you bring it to the place that he chooses. Now, this is a convicting thing for me as well, because I have a tendency to say, God, I'm going to just choose where I'm supposed to give this. Now, I'm submitting to God, and I want him to choose for me. But instead of coming to God and saying, God, have you chosen a place for me to actually bring that which I am to give, that which is reasonable? So it says, but in the place which the Lord chooses, in one of your tribes there you shall offer your burnt offerings. And there you shall do all that I command you. The metropolis, so oftentimes in history this is referred to as the metropolis. It's a Greek word for the center, the chief place. So we could say the chief center, the capital city. Well, this is Jerusalem. So when God is talking about the place that he chooses, the chief place where we will build what is known as the storehouse, the storehouse, the place of treasure, that place God chooses, how will we know where the city is? So God, you're gonna, you're gonna show us this, right? I'll show it to you. Well, how are we gonna recognize this? Well, he will put his name upon it. After all, we don't want to miss this place. I mean, I don't want to be taking it to the wrong place. How will we recognize where we are to bring the reasonable portion? Well, here's a basic principle as we move through this. All things are become new. So I'll just read you the scripture in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What's your position, by the way? Which therefore means that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. So all things have become new. That's what it says here. Old things have passed away. Remember, the word old is key in Scripture. Old and new. Old is symbolic of the first. New is symbolic of the second. The first things have passed away. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's a complete new order to everything in the old covenant. It's not a scrapping of the old covenant. It's a perfect fulfillment of it. But I don't know about you, but if I were to say where are we are supposed to bring our tenth, would you say Old Jerusalem? Well, that would be strange, wouldn't it? Are you going to find a temple in Old Jerusalem and see if there's a Levitical order still functioning there? Are we going to sustain the old system of Israel this way? Is this, is this what we're supposed to do? No, no, see, that's the old system. There is a new system. All things, all things that were old have become new things. And what you're going to see, I'll just go through a quick list. This is just a, a little glimpse Old man, well, now we have a new man. Old temple, it was built by human hands. And Paul says, do you not know that there's a new temple? You're that new temple, huh? Didn't anyone ever tell you this? That you are actually the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? What, I thought there was an old temple. Yeah, and you're the new temple, aren't you in Christ? If you're in Christ, all things are made new. New temple, old Passover lamb. Thousands, millions of Passover lambs throughout the ages. Well, now there's a new one. The Paschal lamb of the ages, no more sacrifices needed. His name is Jesus Christ. There's a lamb in the midst of the throne who appears slain. He is the new lamb. He is the offering. Old diet. There's a whole dietary code and that's how they maintained health. Well, guess what, I'll tell you how to find life. Unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, Jesus says, you cannot have any life in you. It's a new diet. It's called Jesus. Jesus for breakfast, Jesus for lunch, Jesus for dinner. An old rest, I could have called it an old Sabbath, a new Sabbath. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to diminish the fact that there are certain things that are wise in the Old Testament. For instance, to eat a certain way, there's definitely wisdom, but you're not saved by it. You're not legally justified by it. And how about a Sabbath? Well, guess what? Jesus is our rest. That's what it says in Scripture. He is our Sabbath. He is the new Sabbath. And so when we enter into Christ, all things are made new. All. It's a new creation. I mean, literally, everything is new. There's an old covenant, and there's a new covenant. You see, under the old covenant, you had no share. There was no commonwealth for you to partake of, but under the new covenant, there is. Okay, so are you ready for this one? There's an old tithe, and a, uh, all right, I, I won't get there just yet. <laughs> the new covenant. We have a share. We also have a responsibility. So if you're in Christ, you have a share. You have access to the commonwealth of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it truly is remarkable. What we have access to. And if you, if you need to get a refresher course on that, listen to the message in Christ. It goes through 66 things that we have access to. The chief thing being the Holy Spirit of God. We literally have no hindrance between us and the Father. And Jesus says, ask the Father in my name. We are in Christ and therefore we have access unto the Father and he says, just ask. And he wants to give you the Holy Spirit. It it's just truly remarkable, it's amazing. We have a share, but we also have a responsibility. What, what, you thought you were gonna be a freeloader here? There's something you need to do. There's a proper response, it's only reasonable. It's called your reasonable act of service. There is something reasonable for you to do. The new metropolis, <clears throat> old Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem. Did you know that? There's a new Jerusalem. And, and of course, those of you that know scripture would say, yeah, but it's, uh, <clears throat> it's sort of in heaven. Well, let's talk about the new Jerusalem. Where, is, where in the old covenant do the old citizens take the old tithe? They take it to the old Jerusalem. Now we're in a new covenant. There's new citizens, by the way. We're called citizens, fellow citizens. And there is a new metropolis. And there's a new tithe. Where do we take that new tithe? It's very fascinating. So we're going to call this, this, there is a new place for the tithe. Where is that place? Where did God move his storehouse to? We're going to call it the New Jerusalem. It's the place where God will place his name. Remember what Moses says? On the other side of this Jordan, there is going to be a place where God will station his name. His name will abide there. And as a result, that is where you take it. That is where you take the reasonable response as a citizen. For he, Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. We well, see, that, that's not talking about the old Jerusalem. He's looking for a city. He's talking about the new Jerusalem. Abraham the father of the faith, the father of the tithe. He's looking for something beyond it. This is the place where Melchizedek probably hangs out. The new name of the city. In Ezekiel, it talks about this city. It's a parallel with what it says in Revelation. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel, three gates northward, one gate of Reuben, one gate of Judah, one gate of Levi, in the east, and at the east side, three gates, and one gate of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan. At the south side, three gates. One gate of Simeon, one gate of Issachar, one gate of Zebulun. At the west side, three gates. One gate of Gad, one gate of Asher, one gate of Naphtali. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. Remember, there will be a city on the other side of this Jordan. And that is where you take your reasonable offering. And the name of that city is revealed in Ezekiel 48 "Is the Lord is there. It means Jehovah Shammah. The I am is there. It also means he is in it. He is there. Or another way of saying it, since it's the Tetragrammaton, it's the name that literally is translated, I am that I am. That's what Jehovah is. I am herein. This is where I dwell. He places his name upon this city. So this is the city. In a strange way, this is the city that Moses is talking about. Moses isn't just talking about an old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem is merely a placeholder for a greater city. What is that city? And how in the world are we supposed to take anything there? It's in heaven. You guys are thinking, boy, this guy's going to come up with some weird message here. How in the world are we supposed to take our tithe to heaven? So listen to Revelation 3. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. Listen to this. I will write on him the name of my God. You remember that there's supposed to be a city, and on that city is going to be the name of God. But it's talking about people here. It's talking about believers here. In the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, it's talking about people. And God will write his name on them. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, And so we have this mention of a new Jerusalem here. Now, I want you to hold on to this. Which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So we have people getting the name of God written upon them, and somehow they're associated with this new Jerusalem as well. In Revelation 21, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the the, the new Jerusalem. There it is. Coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride? How many of you think of a city as a bride? That's awkward. That's not what a city is. A city is like blocks of stone or cement or wood. It's not living. Well, this one is. This is a living city. It's sort of hard for me to explain how this city works, but that's what it says, because I'm going to read more. This is like a city who is a bride. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come. Listen to this. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So this lamb in the midst of the throne known as Jesus Christ has a wife. And so an angel is gonna show John the wife, okay? And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me, where's the wife? I'm showing you the wife. The great city? Well, I'm looking for a wife. That is the wife. The wife is a city? That's right. Showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. You already know that that word, holy Jerusalem, is referring to the new Jerusalem. There is a new Jerusalem. It's the place that bears his name. It's Jehovah Shammah. I am is in it. Jehovah, the name of God is upon it. It's on the other side of the Jordan. so, I don't know if you're starting to get the link yet, but there is a place where we're supposed to bring our reasonable offering, and it seems to be the lamb's wife. We are to bring it to the bride. We are to bring it to the new Jerusalem. The new storehouse. So we're gonna define the new storehouse, by the way, which in the Hebrew would be the understanding of a treasury. It's the place where the resource of the commonwealth is stored. For what? for the sake of the Commonwealth. It's not for the sake of one priest who suddenly goes off in his Learjet. It's for the sake of the Commonwealth. If I catch a vision for helping someone, I have limited resources. If two of us catch a vision for helping someone and we work together, we actually help them and not just double the capacity, but it might be four times the capacity. If three of us in this room begin to work together and pool our resources and our energies and our talents and our abilities, and we all bring them to the storehouse, did you know that we can reach more than just one person? Say just on my own, I might be able to help a few people. But you put three of us together, we might be able to help 20 people. You see, there is some multiplication factor in the kingdom of heaven when the citizenship of the new Jerusalem come together and establish a storehouse. We establish a system of giving. You see, if there's poor in the land, we try and adopt it on our own. It's like each one of us. This is the way Eric is classic, famously known for. It's like, you, go out and do it. You must do something. However, our coordination together to say, we must do something, it's not that I don't say it. It's that I offer no opportunity for us to become a we. And if there is no opportunity for us to become a we, it's sort of hard to become a we. And that's where I have failed you. I have not given you opportunity to become a we. It is us and you. We're working over here building tents trying to support this and you need to get your act together and start serving the poor. And as a result, we do not have the strength of a commonwealth. So the new storehouse, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the place where God is herein. Did you know that the bride of Christ is where God is herein? The I am is here. He's in us. We are the new Jerusalem. So you're like, where in the world's the new Jerusalem? It's not some esoteric thing way up in the clouds. It's, it's here. It's us. You see, there's a mystery of physically you're here, but spiritually you're actually in Christ at the right hand of the Father, seated in heavenly places. He is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, Physically, but spiritually, he is herein. He lives in us. It's the great mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed, Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory isn't in old Jerusalem. The hope of glory is in new Jerusalem. It's the bride. Those that are in Christ form a city. And who lives inside that city? Citizens. Who makes up that city? Citizens. Who are citizens? Are you a visitor? Are you a stranger from a foreign country? Or are you a citizen in Christ? We become fellow citizens in Christ Jesus. So, the storehouse, also known as the church. Isn't this awkward? There's something about it, and I know how it can be. You could look at Eric as some guy, like I've already been studying Learjet's uh, this week before I gave this message. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I knew you'd had. Like, some of you remember the story of when I was fasting about 20-some years ago, and I was reading cookbooks throughout my whole fast. Couldn't wait to eat my tomato soup afterwards. Well, there's a new Eric, too. (laughs) Praise God. And my itch in life is not a Learjet. My itch in life is not money from you. My itch in life is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And if it would bring glory to Jesus Christ for us to pool together and gain strength so that we can change the world together, I'm in. And I mean it. I'm in. This message is just as much to me as it would be to you. Do you know that I have resource too? You know that I'm not just saying your tenth? What would happen to me? Can't you just see fire from heaven coming down? If Eric Ludi gives a message like this and says, Hey, where's your tenth? And Eric Ludi isn't willing to relinquish the reasonable part on his side. You follow me? In other words, this is all of us. This isn't just like, oh, pastors are immune from their messages. They don't actually have to do it because they're pastors. I can claim Levite here. Hey, hey, us Levites, you're the one you give to us. I can claim that. Paul actually had the very discussion on that exact point. Paul was a tent maker so that he would not trip up anyone. Paul gave more to the church than anyone. How in the world are we supposed to live as the church if its leaders are the grabbers instead of the greatest givers? That's, as far as I'm concerned, the great test that we are walking through. Ananias and Sapphira died on this issue. The body of Christ will be proven on this issue. How we handle that which rightfully belongs to God. The new tithe. So we talk about the old. By the way, I'm really glad there's an old circumcision and a new circumcision. I'm glad that all things have become new. Believe me. The symbol for covenant is not the same. The place we go to bring our tithe is not as it once was. There is a new sacrifice. There is a new creation. There is a new rest in God. All things have been made new. There's a new tithe. The three-tiered tithe of the New Testament city. One, one for the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the missionaries, the gospel laborers. If I was going, by the way, my proposal even for, we're going to break this message into two parts, and I'm actually going to be very practical, and anyone who's not a part of the church, I mean, you could definitely stay around, but I'm going to talk with the church, the people that are actually committed here, and we'll talk very specifically about this. I'm not looking for anything out of this. However, if I'm going to give a platform for those of you that are going somewhere else, when you are giving something, those that preach the gospel live from the gospel. That's how it works in the kingdom of heaven. And so if there isn't an underlayment from the body in this new Jerusalem amongst the citizenship, it is very difficult to labor for the gospel. We are all truncated in our ability to go, to do. Missionaries, how in the world do you think they're going to function overseas? Well, we can come up with elaborate models to make them all tent makers, and I'm not against that. However, we as the body can send, we can underlay, we can give, and we can see the world packed full of great missionaries once again. One church could change the world as far as I'm concerned. So two, one for the infrastructure, the system of government, the house, the place of discipleship, the place of worship, the storehouse. You know, the storehouse needs governance. It needs management. There's an infrastructure. For those of us that might come out of a home church background where it's just like snub the infrastructure, the infrastructure is what's absorbing all the money. If you snub infrastructure in God's economy, you lose the storehouse. You lose the principle of alliance and commonwealth and for us to use and leverage our strength together to change the world. And so that's how it works. The nation of Israel wasn't just a whole bunch of different tribes figuring out how to make it on their own. Those were tribes united. It was a confederacy so that they could work together and accomplish something both in defense and military and in financial strength that they couldn't have possibly accomplished on their own. Number three, one for the needy in the church and the needy around the world. Well, it's just just not going away. No matter how much you give, have you noticed that it's like a vortex, a black hole? There's more that needs to be given. And so as a result, there needs to be a system. We have certain people in this church that oftentimes those that are in a weak situation always go to. They have a reputation for it, of giving. Well, you know what? Praise God for those people in this church. And as a result, a lot of weight falls on individuals instead of on us. And there's some of you in here that are hurting, but you don't even know where to turn. You don't know who to talk to. You have real needs that the church could actually help with, but we're not coordinated to actually address those needs. Heavenly honor. At Ellerslie, we talk about honor, which I would say, in a very simple way, is the behavior of heaven come to this earth. If we were all to get on a bus, and, you know, it's a flying bus, and we went up to heaven, and we took a tour of the heavenly kingdom, and we walked into the Holy of Holies, uh, what would it be like? You're not going to see clothes strewn around, you're not going to see uh, behavior that is fleshly and rude, you're going to see heavenly behavior. Well, that heavenly behavior, how do the angels relate to God? Well, just watch, just for a minute, and we could change our lives, because we are the mobile holy of holies down here. It'd, be, it'd do, do us good to take this tour, to recognize that the way we live represents heaven. That's just the principle of honor. So the way we're going to live down here shows heaven. It should. And so I'm going to make an appeal to all of us based on heavenly honor, not on law, not on pressure, not on arm twisting, but on honor. That's going to be my pressure point. I want to say this is reasonable, this is appropriate. The 10% is not a sacrifice. It is a show of basic honor. There's just certain things that you do to show honor. And if you don't do it, it's, it's, it would be called a show of disrespect. As much as shaking the hand when someone stretches out their hand to you. It's, it's not a sacrifice. It is a show of honor. As much as saying hello to a passerby. Have you ever done that? I'm, I always end up in this situation. I had a, a principal when I was driving. I lived in South Denver for a while uh, during my college days. when My parents were living down there. And I was in this one area where no one ever waved. It's like, if you're in the South, or if you're in a farming community, everyone waves. You ever seen those, the cool bikers? They do uh, something like that. Uh, it's, it's cool. I, I can never do that in a car. You can't just open your door and like do that thing. <laughs> so I'm very uncool. Like, I'm driving down the road, I'm always waving at people. And I decided I was gonna wave even though 99% of the people I drove by just ignored me. You know what, it's okay. And if you are given highs and hellos and waves and no one responds, so be it. However, if someone's waving at you and saying hi to you, do not be the one to be the stick in the mud. In other words, you respond. That's a show of honor, basic honor. As much as paying for the gas you used up while borrowing someone's car. You see, we're at Ellerslie. We have a lot of car borrowing around here. And when you borrow someone's car, it's just courtesy. It's etiquette, you could call it, to just... Repay for the gas. You're not. You know they have other expenses other than just the gas. You know they're also paying for insurance. They're paying for, paying for mechanical issues in that car. And you're just covering gas. That's the basic. In other words, if you're going to borrow something, then just remember that. As much as saying thank you to someone for giving you a present. Someone hands you a present and you just walk off and open it and then go and play with it. What do you turn? You come back just as the lepers that were healed. One came back and said thank you. Thank you, that's just basic. It wasn't a sacrifice for the leper to come back and thank him. No, it was a tithe. That's what it was. It was just a tithe, it's that which is basic and expected. It is not a sacrifice, it is not some glorious offering. It is what is normal, what is appropriate for those that appreciate the gift. As much as making your bed in the morning only constitutes good manners and decency and not in any way should be deemed a great sacrifice. Now, some of us on the kids' side in the audience are like, it's a big sacrifice. But as parents, you know what's funny is if your child makes his, his or her bed, you can thank them for it. But you know that that's not even required on your side to thank them for something that is just a normal obligation? It's like they make their bed. They brush their teeth. You don't say, thank you for brushing your teeth. You say, did you brush your teeth? Yes. Well, good. Good. In other words, it's not a gift to you, even though it is to have them smell better and to have the house cleaner. It is the normal. It is the baseline. It is etiquette. It is honor. That's what it is. Beyond 10%. See, most of us are having a tough time even conjuring up the notion of 10%. I'm gonna talk about beyond 10% because this is the territory. I'm not asking you to go in it. I'm just saying this is the territory that I think we need to recognize is different than the 10%. So I'm just separating it out, it's a different dimension. So beyond 10%, that which is beyond 10% is considered an offering, a sacrifice, true generosity. The 10th is not generosity, it's normal. But anything beyond that is the generosity of your life. You see, it hurts you to give beyond that. The first is expected. What is beyond that is a giving out of weakness. And God has a special place in his heart for that which is beyond. It's a sacrifice, true generosity, a statement of worship and love. And I'm not saying that the 10th isn't a statement of worship and love. I'm just saying this is a great statement. It is over and above. And it is not a statement that you make to men and women around you. You do not say, by the way, this this is an offering. You don't need to say that. In fact, anonymous is always better. Because this isn't for your glory. This is the widow's might that gives all she has. She didn't even just give a 10th, she gave all she had. That's Christianity. You see, technically Christianity is an offering up of our life. It's 100%. But in how you handle your finances, you need to realize that though 100% of them belong to Jesus Christ, the reasonable act, without even prayer, you know what to do is you give the 10th. If God asks beyond that, that's his business. But there's a baseline. It's always been there. And so we start with the baseline. We reconfigure our life around the baseline. And then we say the other 90 is still yours, God. But that other 90 is a different territory. You know God still wants you to take care of the basics in your life? You know, there's other things other than just the storehouse. There's a life. There's children. There are needs, food and therefore, you are responsible for how you handle that other 90%. The vow of the 10th, the commitments of the reasonable responsibility. One of the things that it says in the Old Testament is that there's these vows. The vow, you're supposed to bring that vow into the place where I put my name. So for us, I'd say at the most basic level, there needs to be some level of agreement with God. By the way, I'm not asking you to tell me anything. I'm not asking you to come up to me and saying, here's what I decided after your message, Eric. This is, this is not with me that I'm asking you to deal. I want you to deal with God on this. And I would like you to all consider coming before God and saying, God, this is yours. It's to him that you're giving it. Ironically, it's to the body, but that's because this is his body. And so when we bring it to the new Jerusalem, we're bringing it to Jesus. However, it's for his body. That's how he uses it. That's his primary use. When the body is strong, guess what? The body can now give. When the body is strong, we're meeting the needs of the body. Did you know that's our primary needs? You know that the needs out there in the dying world are actually secondary to the needs of the body? We actually use our resources first and foremost to help each other, and then we all turn out strong to give to the lost. You send missionaries out of that strength. Could you imagine this church Supporting 1,000 missionaries? Sounds impossible, doesn't it? You know that George Mueller personally supported 200 missionaries? And the guy lived by faith? 200? So a 1,000? You know that's actually preposterous statistically in a room like this? It's, it's preposterous. However, I have a bead on a lot of great missionaries. I train them. I got tons that are coming through here. Imagine if as a church we adopted... The missionaries of this next generation said, let's get them out there. Let's get them trained and sent. And imagine if a missionary could come here, which might not have much of a home church base. They might not feel like they've ever really plugged in. They come here for nine weeks, and we say, we'll adopt you. We'll adopt you. That's just an amazing thought. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring your tithes, which you vow to the Lord. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The principle in scripture, and I know that this is probably a health, wealth, and prosperity classic quote. However, it's the Bible. And it basically is saying, you take that first and you give it to God. You say thank you as a means of honor when you receive. You honor God with that first and guess what? You will never lack. Long and short, you will be taken care of. You honor God, God takes care of you. The story of the Ludi family. So I'm just using this as an illustration. I'm actually not sharing a real story. I know that's sort of not as exciting to some of you as it would be if I could share more dirt on the Ludi family. Isn't it funny that people love dirt on the Ludi family? Something's unhealthy about that. The story of the Ludi family. Introducing the players. The father and the mother. daddy mommy. The children, in my case, Hudson, Harper, Kipling, Avonlea, Reese, Lily, we got a whole household. The house guest, I don't have a name for him, but this is someone that may stay in the Lutie house. The visitor, oh, there's names, you were a visitor once, many of you have been to my house, and as a result, you could fall into this category of being the visitor to the Lutie house. The salesman at the door, I don't know if any of you fall into that category. I, I love salesmen, I'm very nice to salesmen, so if you ever stop by as a salesman, I'm likely to buy. It's one of those strange things. I don't think I've ever turned away a kid that came to my door. They're so cute. Uh, So the salesman at the door. So I'm going to introduce you to a predicament. In the loody house, oh, no, there's a problem. The dishes need to be cleaned. They're stacked up and, you know, grime all over them. Oh, no, what are we going to do? So Eric begins to look for a solution, okay? So let's walk through this. Introducing the code of honor. So I'm going to introduce you to an idea that there is honor in how I run my home. So as a result, there are certain ways that I'm going to interact with different types of people. And so I'm going to start with the salesman at the door. The salesman at the door shows up, and I have a problem in my house. Is it appropriate for me to ask the salesman to help me with my problem? The salesman at the door. The needs of the Ludi family have no hold on him. He actually has no legal, ethical, moral responsibility to help me clean my dishes. There's actually no responsibility to do it. If he finds out we have a predicament, he is free to walk away and knock on another door instead of ours. The looting's needs are not his responsibility. In fact, it would be considered rude for me to ask the salesman to help clean our dishes, for I would be robbing income from him and taking him away from supplying resource to his own family. Hey buddy, could you stop selling and could you come in and clean my dishes? Now, if you were selling and someone asked you to do that, I would actually say go in and clean their dishes. That's what I would say. But it would be a supernatural statement of God's love that you would do it. It's not something that you are obligated to in even the slightest way to do. Okay, and so as a result, we do not expect anyone who comes to our door like that to deal with our issues. The visitor on the couch so someone has come over and you've given them a little drink and you know the conversation begins and the waft from the kitchen dirty dishes comes into and you're like, oh no. Oh, the visitor has no real responsibility to help solve this predicament either. They're just sitting there minding their own business. They just stopped in and are having a nice chat. Maybe they were even asking you how your day was going. They were just being nice, checking in on you. A kindly visitor may rise up and offer to give of their time, energy, and expertise to help with this problem in the loody household. But technically, the code of honor asks me to make sure that, if at all possible, they are not put in such a position. I mean, how horrible is it to think that the people that visit my house, none of you, none of you are ever going to visit my house again, if I'm constantly saying, yeah, and I also have some trash that needs to be taken out. Now, I've had plenty of elderly people come by and do very nice things in my house. However, it'd be very rude if I was expecting everyone to swing by and do all the cleaning for me. If a visitor were to help clean our dishes, it would be classified as them doing the Luty family an extraordinary favor or blessing the Luty family with their thoughtfulness. But as the Ludi family, such behavior should never be expected or requested from our guests. So now let's talk about the house guest because there's a subtle difference between the salesman and the visitor and the house guest. The house guest is gonna be hanging around for a while and you know, I don't know how much time they'd be in the house, but there's a sort of an understanding with a house guest. And sometimes it's awkward to know how to say it, but if you're a house guest, you also want to contribute at some level. And of course, the, the mother and father, the people that run the house, can always say, no, no, please, you don't need to worry about doing that. But it's still your responsibility to offer, okay? So there's this unspoken tension that can sometimes be there. But the house guest is in a unique position. They are not a child, but they're also not a visitor. Due to the fact that they are staying at the house and enjoying the protection, resource, and atmosphere of the Lutie House, I'm in a position to ask more of them than I would a visitor, but not as much as I would a child. For instance, it could be reasonable and perfectly appropriate for me to ask them to help me with some chores around the house, but as a house guest, I should seek ways to not burden them with the full weight of house responsibility, but merely find ways to help them serve in order that they may never feel like a burden, but as a blessing. In other words, you almost want to give a house guest an opportunity to do something so that they feel like they're doing something. It's like, okay, so I'm sort of giving back a little. And so as a result, you work together, but you don't want to do, give undue burdens. Yeah, we're leaving for a week, and I, could you rebuild my living room? You know, that type of a thing. <laughs> if a house guest were to wash the dishes, it could be considered a reasonable help to offset their stay in the looty house. But still, compared to a child, a house guest is still a guest and should never have undue constraints put upon them unless family status is inferred in and through a longer stay and clear communication. You know, there's some of you, that you just sort of have been with a family for a long time, so it begins to be inferred. The the mother and father start calling you a child. Well, you might not legally be a child, but you're sort of inferred as a child. Now, as a result, child responsibility falls on you. Okay, so let's talk, talk about that. Remember, the looty dishes are dirty, okay? So we have an issue, we have a predicament. The child has a share in the looty house. It's their house too. Now think about the difference between a house guest and a child. That child actually says, This is my house. You know that technically speaking, that child will even inherit the house if mommy and daddy die. It is their house. It technically is. In a different sort of way, then this is how you say it. They are not in charge of the house, but they share in its benefits and in the future of it. They are bound by the bonds of family covenant to care for the house, protect the house, and labor to keep the house clean and orderly. So when the dishes are dirty, it is not considered a favor a blessing, or even a sacrifice for a child to wash the dishes. Of course, I can still say thank you to my children for doing this work, but this work is expected. It's reasonable, appropriate, and even necessary. I want to emphasize that even necessary for a child to perform. If my children are not doing this, I'm actually doing them a disservice. I'm harming them by not allowing them to function as children in the looty house. In fact, if I don't have my children do this work, they will not grow up properly understanding their responsibility and caring for that which is entrusted to them. So I'm going to introduce you to another predicament here. The Levites are starving, the temple is in ruins, there is no gold in the treasury to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and the poor in the land are resorting to thievery in order to survive. Oh no, Israel is falling apart. So the foreigner in the land, this is the salesman, just sort of... You know, knocking door to door. And, well, he just might want to keep on traveling. There's an issue in Israel. And someone might say, hey, you should take care of this problem. The guy's like, hey, none of my business. The Samaritan, we could call them the visitors. Well, it's not really his business or his problem either. How about the Gentile servant? Maybe we could call him the house guest. Well, he might want to pitch in and see about helping, but it's definitely not a long-term solution for the restoration of strength and health to Israel. And now the Israelite, the child, he is a citizen. He is responsible for the bringing in of his full tithe. When each Israelite responds with its reasonable tenth, national Israel will thrive and its governmental infrastructure will revive. So now I'm going to introduce you to another predicament. And this one might hit a little more close to home. The church is weak in America. Discipleship is almost nil in the church today. Missionaries are impaired overseas. There's actually a massive breakdown amongst missionary support today. And the poor orphan and destitute in our land are exponentially increasing. We have problems, and ironically, they're problems that the church is assigned, and yet we can't even take care of ourselves, let alone someone else out there, so we have a predicament. The guy taking a walk down Southwood Lane, this is Southwood Lane, by the way, so he's minding his own business, and suddenly we're like, we have a predicament, what do you think that guy should do? He might want to quicken his pace. <laughs> the students at Allersley. Well, there is no doubt that this matters to them, but they are responsible for committing to their own local church, which is not necessarily here in Windsor. In other words, these students are coming through for nine weeks, and they're paying to come through, and as a result, it's, it's not necessarily their responsibility to solve the issues that we may have locally, and yet they still need to listen and heed this message because it still matters to them, and yet they're just a visitor here. The long-term attendees of our chapel services on Sunday mornings, notice what I likened you guys to, house guests, and that's been our problem. In other words, we have house guests, it's sort of a long-term relationship, but it, it doesn't have the clear relationship. You don't necessarily adopt this ministry as yours, and we don't necessarily adopt you as ours. And so as a result, we just have a nice, healthy relationship where we wave at each other in the morning. Maybe we say, do you want to store something in the refrigerator here? But it's a house guest relationship. Well, it probably would be good for them to be doing something to help, but as long as they are considered merely house guests, there is only so much that can be asked. The church families at Ellerslie. By the way, we all would maybe consider, or many of you would consider yourself a church family, but that's never been formalized. This is their generation. There should be church families here at Ellerslie. This is their problem. Our issues are our issues. Those lost souls are their concern. Those missionaries are their obligation. This is their Jerusalem. This is their church. Ellerslie is their ministry. This is their campus. This is their responsibility to pray for, wrestle for, and give to. This is where their reasonable tenth is needed. This is the infrastructure through which the coordination of a mighty outpouring of provision can and will take place. Every one of us needs to know our storehouse. The question isn't if we should give our 10th, but where we should give it. Some of you, it's not supposed to be here. You have another place which should be probably construed as your storehouse. What does a storehouse look like? I'll give you five attributes of a storehouse. A storehouse is a central clearinghouse for the resources of the citizens. It's a place of giving the spiritual strength and material substance of the citizens. You know that you can actually give more than just a 10th of your property? You can give a tenth of a lot of areas of your life. Time, energy, resource, these are all things that you can actually give. A place where truth is preached and given without compromise to the citizens. That's another definition of a storehouse. It's called the church. A place where training and discipleship is offered and supplied to the citizens. A place from which the sending forth of the citizens into all the world to preach, teach, and make disciples occurs. And a place from which the material substance, the money, the talents, the message, the time, the energies of the citizens, is organized and from which it is wisely distributed to those in need. The church, we'll call it the new Jerusalem, the new storehouse, the place of the new covenant tithe, God's chosen means of organizing the tithes and offerings of the citizens of God's grand city, and God's chosen vehicle through which to bless the nations. Each church is an individual storehouse, and yet all the storehouses belong to Jesus, so here's the interesting thing about how the storehouse works in the New Testament. We're a church. Well, there's another church down the street. But they're an individual storehouse. And yet all of us, both that church down the street and us, all our resources still belong to Jesus Christ. The healthy storehouse, always ready to give. There's a healthy storehouse in Scripture. It's known as the Church at Philippi. And there's an unhealthy storehouse in Scripture. It's known as the Church at Corinth, the pastor's nightmare church. So let's talk about the healthy storehouse. It's always ready to give. So in Philippians, it says, Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Doesn't that sound like our church right there? You surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Eric Ludi is standing in the way. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be a base, and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Isn't that amazing? No church shared with Paul except for the church at Philippi. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet smell and aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So with that giving comes an assurance. With that giving to Paul came an assurance that God will supply all their needs. And so, what we have is a picture of a church. This isn't an individual. This is a church. They sent Epaphroditus to deliver what that church had, but the church gave from its storehouse, the storehouse at Philippi. So now let's look at an unhealthy church. Where is the storehouse? That's the key question in the, at the church at Corinth. So Paul's talking to them. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches. What did Paul just say there? I robbed other churches. I took from their bounty, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. You see, we fall in an interesting place. Are we going to be Philippi? Or are we going to be Corinth? You see, I've been laboring to be like Paul in Corinth, but I don't know that it's necessary. I think you guys want to give, but you lack opportunity. You lack clarity. There's no organization to that dimension of how we function. So here's another passage in Corinthians. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, in other words, there's those that have a right, Paul has a right, and he's saying the church around you has a right to this. How much more the one who founded the church? How much more the the one that planted it? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. That's the proper order of things right there. And guess what? We train up. People to share the gospel. We train up people to give their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we need? We need a storehouse. We need a way of supporting and undergirding those that are called to give their life to the gospel. Opening up the family. What I would say is our great weakness here thus far over five years has been the fact that there isn't an access point. Now, I can give you all sorts of reasons for why. There's, there is reasons of how we got set up and why we're set up the way we are. However, it is also a stumbling block to many of you, and I would like to remove that stumbling block, it's, and this is part of that. Entering the covenant of family. You know that family is a covenant? It is. It's, we could even call it the salt covenant. The covenant of love, my life for yours. This is how it works in the body. We join together. We form a confederacy. We're in this together. It's the covenant of love. My life for yours. I'll give up my life to see you live. This is what Jesus did for us. He brought us into his family. The covenant of trust. You know that if you ever come to me and you share something, you know that it doesn't just go somewhere else? It's a covenant of trust. It's called privacy. I will guard your confidences. That's what we have in the body of Christ. This is a safe place. It's a covenant relationship we have. The covenant of responsibility, and this is the big one for what we're talking about today. I will carry my share and at minimum my reasonable tenth. It's just a responsibility. If we all share our reasonable responsibility, guess what? It works. The covenant of defense, you have my sword. The covenant of submission, I will honor the appointed authority and follow them as they follow Christ. The covenant of unity, I will preserve the integrity of our relationship and not allow petty things to part us. This is family. We work through things. We figure out a way. You're hurting, you have my strength. I'm hurting, I have your strength. We work together. You always know that family has your back, don't you? What's happened to family in the church? It's hard nowadays, it's hard. Many of us are struggling because when I'm talking about the church, you're trying, and you might even be visiting here today, you're like, yeah, I I don't really have a church that fits any of this. I don't trust them with these resources. I don't trust that they would enter into that with me. I understand. We're in a rebuilding season in the church. However, I can only deal with here. That's all I can deal with. I I, I want to change the church at large, but all I can do as a pastor is start here in my life, my family, my children, and you guys. Let's do this right. The salt covenant. Salt is a preservation, and this is the covenant that binds In other words, if you came into my house and ate, a salt covenant basically says we have exchanged salt. So if someone came to my door and was banging on it saying, hey, send him outside so I can kill him, I'd say you'd have to kill me first. I'm in a salt covenant with this man or this family. It's binding. And it's a a covenant of preservation. You see, when we enter into a salt covenant, we share a meal. It's called the Last Supper. It's called communion. We share a covenant meal. You know that every sacrifice that was given in, in Israel, even wheat, you sacrifice wheat, you put salt on it. Every sacrifice had salt. The enduring nature of the covenant is, ex- is, is expressed. It's preserving. So, listen to this. This is a little interesting way of saying it. It's the covenant of preservation. I have a covenant with you to see you preserved. You have a covenant with me to see it preserved. We have a covenant together to see that this lasts, that we can endure whatever we face in the future. So, my ra- resources are available for your preservation. That's what it is. My resources are available for your, the Confederacy's, preservation. Let's do this together.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellersley Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.